Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis, and in conjunction with the American Decorative Arts Forum, I have a special co-host today, Susan Doherty. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Great, thanks for joining us, and we have a great guest, Sibel Gunter. How are you doing, Sibel? Very well, thanks for having me. Sure, welcome to San Francisco. Delighted to be here. All right, so why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your uh, background, and um, you're out here because you are going to do a lecture this week. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Okay. Um, the title of my lecture is Creole Furniture and Architecture, Louisiana Creole Furniture and Architecture, 1735 to 1835. Um, and the, the lecture basically um, is covering the subject of a book that I just co-authored, um, mm. basically Louisiana Furniture of the same period. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book doesn't cover architecture, but Susan and I sort of talked about what the lecture would encompass, and she felt that the audience here would appreciate um, us to talk about some, you know, of course the architecture in New Orleans and the surrounding area is very diverse. It's very and beautiful. So, very beautiful, mm. yes, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and of course we have the, you know, the buildings in the Vucaray, the French Quarter, um, which mm-hmm. some of them, we have a few 18th century buildings and of course um, many 19th century. And then we have the Garden District, um, the American sector outside of the French Quarter, and then of course the outlying plantations. So there's um, a lot of material to cover, but hopefully I'll be able to condense it down for the audience on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Well, I know everybody's excited uh, to learn about uh, New Orleans furniture and the architecture. Um, Our earliest French influences in this country come from there. Um, What strikes you most about New Orleans furniture? What is the one characteristic that, um, when you look at the body of work, that differs from New Orleans in other parts of the country? Yes. Um, I think that Louisiana furniture from the early period, you know, the 18th century, um, to me it almost has a shaker quality, hmm. a, sim- a simplicity and elegance that um, I don't think you see anywhere else. Um, you know, the, the um, local makers were following French models um, they did import furniture. Some of the earliest settlers did import furniture from, from Paris to New Orleans. Um, we have letters and other documents uh, that tell us that and, and actually what things they had. Um, and so you can just look at the, you know, the furniture that was produced in this early period and look at the cabriole legs and the shape of things and see mm-hmm. um, the armoires. You know, they're following uh, French models. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, mahogany... Is very popular, um, you know. It, it's very popular in in New Orleans starting in the late 18th century, really. Um, before that, um, early settlers were using a lot of cypress mm-hmm. because um, you know New Orleans is basically it was surrounded by cypriers or cypress swamps. So cypress was used to build houses. It was used to build furniture. But then, as you know. The mahogany trade increases. Um, lots of mahogany is, mahogany is coming in by the thousands of the ton. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's no shortage of it to make furniture out of. Mm-hmm. Mahogany and cherry become mm-hmm. become popular. 
where is the cherry coming from and where is the mahogany coming from? Well, the mahogany was primarily coming from Saint-Domingue. Um, we have a lot of um, newspaper advertisements that, that show that. Um, there were many um, marchands de bois or you know, lumber merchants in New Orleans mm -hmm. um, who were importing that. So um, there, was, there was no shortage of material to make furniture out of in New Orleans. They didn't need to bring it in from anywhere else except you know, the islands nearby. But cherry was local, of local wood. Yes, cherry was local, um, walnut as well. Mm -hmm. Given the urban center um, and as well as the proximity of New Orleans to waterways, um, I would imagine they did they manufacture a lot of furniture for export and for sale elsewhere in the United States? Was it a center that exported furniture such as Salem? and some of the other East Coast centers? New Orleans is a center of importation <laughs> for mm. furniture, not exportation. Um, certainly there was um, a certain amount of furniture produced there, mm -hmm. um, but compared to a larger urban center like New York or Philadelphia, the, the amount of stuff being produced couldn't even compare. It couldn't even come close. Um, but we do know that lots of stuff is coming in from New York and Philadelphia. Again, we have newspaper advertisements. We have um, lots of documentation of that. Now, I know um, Thomas Jefferson imported a lot of French furniture when he had his uh, stay in France. And I know that he was after a Campeche chair, and he finally got one. And I saw that somewhere in some of your writing, Campeche chairs. Can you yes, I've done a lot of research on Campeche chairs. Um, that was a subject of my master's thesis at Cooper oh, Hewitt. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, being from New Orleans, it was very important to me to do a thesis on a New Orleans topic, a Louisiana-related topic. Um, so, you know, uh, I went home and looked around, and uh, a friend of mine said, oh, these chairs have never been researched before. And um, I actually went down to New Orleans to run the Crescent City Classic. And um, after the Classic, I went to his house. And it just ended up that we all went back to the French Quarter. And uh, I was sitting in one of the chairs, and I was telling him about, you know, I'd just come in from New York, and... Um, I was sort of bemoaning the fact that another topic that I had suggested wasn't going to work out. Um, and so he said, well, look at the chair you're sitting in. You could do that. And I looked at it, and I said, yeah, you're right. This would be really great to work on. Um, so that really that turned out very, very well. Now, but, you're the um, only one I know that ever sat in one. Are they, very, they must be very comfortable. Are they known for some, comfort? Some of them are comfortable. Some of them are not. But just to yeah. go back to answer your question about Thomas Jefferson, um, we know that Jefferson received chairs at least one from New Orleans. Um, he was sent one in 1819 by Thomas Bowling Robertson. Um, so we know that he had them, he used them during retirement mm -hmm. at Monticello. Mm -hmm. um, there was an ad that appeared um, in the Democratic um, National Intelligencer in 1827. Uh, an ad was placed by a man named Henry Hill. And Henry Hill, in the ad, it says that he sort of credits Jefferson for introducing... Um, Spanish chairs to this area um, and some have interpreted that to mean that um, he had them in the president's house. I don't agree with that. I think that he had them in retirement. We know that mm -hmm. um, via letters and other documents. But I think that he popularized them you know, via his use of them at Monticello. Certainly many people visited Monticello. Um, I think that he had, there was an estate sale in 1826 after yes. he died, and that's right. when the legacy of Jefferson yeah. really becomes, really is crystallized. Yes. And people mm -hmm. become aware of all the things that he, that he owned and he used. 
Um, and so, you know, they were certainly aware of these chairs that he had and his family members. Um, I know at least one of them um, inherited a chair. Um, so actually requested that she be sent one of his, his Campeche chairs. That was Ellen Coolidge. I understand that the Campeche chair takes its name from a port in Mexico from which exported uh, wood or logs to New Orleans. Is that correct? Yes. Um, there's a, a port city on the Yucatan Peninsula, you know, Campeche. Mm -hmm. um, and so during the, the late 18th, early 19th century, there was a lot of trade going back and forth between... Uh, Campeche and New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the chairs came to be called Campeche chairs, and so I wondered where did that come from? Um, and so we did go into the National Archives and look into the uh, original shipping manifests, and sure enough, these chairs started popping up in the manifests. And so, so they were named after the city because they were coming off the ship and it was coming from that place. Much as Canton Ware was yes, named after Canton. Very much the same, yes. So, do we believe that the first chairs of this type came from, were imported to the United States from Mexico, and then we Americans started to make them? Is that the theory? Yes, they, um, they were shipped into New Orleans from Mexico, from the Yucatan. Um, they were very popular among the planters. And some of them, of course, were shipped from New Orleans, you know, further north, like from New Orleans to Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, but um, my recent research shows that they were probably arriving in other ports as well, possibly from Spain. Um, there is a chair in the collection of Princeton University, the Princeton Library, Firestone Library. Um, it's a, a very old chair. It's probably late 18th century. And uh, James Madison's chair is actually a sibling of that chair. And there's another one um, in an important estate in England. So, you know, these Spanish chairs sort of had a moment of popularity um, internationally, not just in the United States. Um, it just so happens that there were a lot of them in the Yucatan. They were shipped to New Orleans, and they were very popular. Because, you know, New Orleans is really part of the Caribbean culture. It's really the, the, the northernmost outpost of Latin American plantation mm. culture. Mm -hmm. And so those chairs fit in there, the way they fit in in the you know, hot climates in the islands and in on the Yucatan. Susan, I just wondered, how the heck did you know that question? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I think she's so, been reading up. Okay. <laughs> well, I've, I've always been interested in the form, and they seem to me an early form of the Barca lounger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think but so. the Sleepy I, Hollow I, Chair, do you, do you know what the Sleepy Hollow Chair is? <laughs> It's a Victorian chair that's kind of slung like that. Yes. A little difficult to get out of. But uh, a question I had for you is, was there any, like, Louis XV or Louis XVI influence in the chairs as far as, like, the fluted uh, legs and things like that in uh, Creole furniture? No, I wouldn't say in Creole furniture. No, I mean, mm. um, the Campeche chair, um, the ones that are made in Louisiana after the ones that come from Mexico. That's really a quintessentially Creole object, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that their ongoing use in Louisiana really speaks to um, the local populace's um, sort of promotion of their Latin heritage. Mm. You know, they're, they're, to, the, to them, the chair symbolizes their Latin heritage. So does that answer your question? The, yes. the Campeche chair, though, spreads, and we, we see them 
not only in Virginia and in Washington. Um, we they're imported ones, but then we also start making them in the United States. Yes, I know from your book. Now, are there any documented examples of these further north? Um, in do they go as far as New York? And are there any documented examples of them being owned in New England? Places that I know that they were made. They were made in New Orleans. They were made in Washington D.C. Really? They were made in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, they were made in Virginia. You know, um, we have examples that were made in the um, Savannah County area. Um, Versions of them may have been made in New York. Um, They were probably called Spanish chairs, quote-unquote Spanish chairs. Um, As further north than New York, I I don't think so. I had never heard. I'm more familiar with New England furniture, and I had not heard of... In an, envi- in an environment as cosmopolitan as New York, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them came in, you mm-hmm. know, via trade or were copied. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen one that's New York made, you know, definitely New York, mm-hmm. but maybe one will turn up. I, I don't know. Maybe that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> the ones that we see now have either leather upholstery, and some of them have been reupholstered in mm-hmm. fabric. Um, given that it, it, they were common in tropical areas, were they originally caned, were they, or were they always done originally in leather? They originally were done in leather that was often embossed with mm-hmm. patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, they are made with caning. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a tradition of them definitely, especially in, in Havana. Um, there was an architectural historian who wrote an article. He went to Havana and... Um, did some research, and his article wasn't about furniture, but he had a picture of one mm-hmm. of a chair being caned in the photograph, just wow. like nice. the same exact type. And so um, they they did cane them. You can you can find them today coming from Indonesia, and they're caned. So. I see. Back to the armoires and a, a mm-hmm. form that one immediately associates with um, both the French and with New Orleans. I'm intrigued that they're very French in form, the French, the curvaceous French legs, Mm -hmm. and it's a form that one really doesn't see much of outside of the New Orleans area. You have in the Mid-Atlantic, you have a linen press, um, linen presses. You don't really see armoires as armoires. But what interests me the most is you have a very quintessentially French form, and those which are inlaid are inlaid in a very American manner, um, you see, and of course, American being Anglo-American, it's influenced by England, but you also see certain Scottish touches um, in the inlay pattern, that similar patterns to what you see in the uh, southern back country, but further north. So can you explain the juxtaposition of the English inlay on this very French form? Yes. Um, so I'm going to uh, tell the story of George Dewhurst again. Um, uh, there was a, a forum at Winter in 2007, their you know, annual furniture forum, and um, I thought it would be a really good, I- good idea to go because the focus was inlay. Um, and so I got my co-author, Dr. Jack Holden, to come down, or to come up, rather, from New Orleans, and uh, we attended a talk by um, an inlay expert, Stephen Latta, um, and he, you know, had done a lot of work on, um, you know, a lot of federal period inlay, um, and he was very familiar with the... Um, you know, Seymour's, um, and that he knew that this guy, George Dewhurst, 
had, you know, done a lot of inlay for the Seymours and that he had traveled down to New Orleans. And we had his name, of course, in our list of cabinet makers, but we didn't know that he was an inlay person, an inlay expert. Hmm. Um, and so Latta um, did some really phenomenal research and discovered that Dewhurst had uh, traveled down from Boston. He migrated, really, um, through, um, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, and then Baltimore and then to New Orleans. Um, and so in that way, you know, he would have been able to pick up all these different um, styles, you know, on the, way, on the way to New Orleans. And so here was a person who had a whole repertoire. Um, um, and so if you arrive in a place like New Orleans, you know, the armoire is such a, um, you know, popular form, um, you know, before closets and pantries become de rigueur, um, these were very practical you know, to store clothing in, to store, you know, dishes in, whatever it was that you wanted to put away in a cabinet. Um, and, of course, the, the forms were um, quintessentially French. Um, but then we have, um, you know, in the early 19th century, all of a sudden we have these almars being made with all this Anglo-American inlay. And so Dewhurst is a very, you know, um, strong candidate for being someone who came down and um, was responsible for all of that sort of sort of all that decoration appearing on those armoires. Well, and it also so, provides a very large flat surface. To, mm-hmm. You know, it's a real a to way decorate. to showcase a one's yeah. a yeah. canvas. That's right for mm-hmm. for for inlay. But thank you, Sabelle, for reminding me of Mr. Dewhurst's travels because his travels through the back country would explain the Scottish influence on much of the heavily inlaid furniture. Yes. Because he went through Kentucky. Yes. And this is where you see those Scottish-influenced designs. Right. This was a person with a significant repertoire, as I said. Um, You know, he would have been capable of, easily capable of decorating any of the armoires. Yes. Do you think that he... Actually, did the inlay because there are many New Orleans armoires that are not inlay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, is it possible that when a cabinet maker wanted something inlaid, that they had the inlay done by Mr. Dewhurst, or did he just sell the stringing and the pictorial shells right, to the cabinet makers? Right, he sold stock inlays that he ordered from elsewhere, um, but he was um, trained to do it. To so, make them or to put them oh, into the make, doors? Oh, both. Both. I'm sure that he did both, yes. He could have probably created an armoire. <clears throat> There's actually, I mean, the armoires that are inlaid, um, they could have been made by an Anglo-American cabinet maker who came to New Orleans and observed and crafted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, pieces that looked were fashionable, that looked like things that the local populace would want to own. To appeal to his market. To appeal to his market. Um, my hunch is that they were made by somebody from Saint-Domingue because there were so All many of them? of them. Well, I'm not saying that every single armoire mm-hmm. made in New Orleans was made by an emigre from Saint-Domingue. I'm just saying that there were so many of them locally, and they have this flavor. When mm-hmm. you look at them, um, they have a, a, a flavor that you know speaks to that tradition. I mean, when you look at the mm-hmm. armoire made for Stephen Gerard. It's the same kind of object. Yeah. So when you have a certain kind of object being made in an environment where you have a preponderance of individuals who are from that, you know, an environment where those things are being made, then the educated guess is that, you know, 
a sentiment. Right. And then many of them were indentured to other cabinet makers, so you could have had, you know, somebody working for someone else. Mm -hmm. Somebody could have established a business and then had a bunch of people working for Mm -hmm. making things. And and then you have Dewhurst nearby. The French Quarter is a very small place, Mm. right? Yes. You have... um, 35 or 40 cabinet makers or people listed as cabinet makers in the directory making furniture in that small space. These are people who know one another, right? Mm-hmm. It's not hard to walk a block or two <laughs> from Bourbon Street to, you know, um, Royal Street or, you know, any other street and find the person you need to work on this other, you know, aspect, inlay or whatever. It does make one think that perhaps um, in New Orleans, inlay people may have, inlay specialists may have uh, interacted with cabinet makers in much the way that carvers interacted with cabinet makers. In other words, there was a chair maker who then would hire Samuel McIntyre or his son to carve the piece, such that the chair maker is one distinct party or firm. And the carver is another. Yes. There's so much similarity with the inlay, and there are so many pieces that are not inlaid, so one could see how a typical cabinet maker may have brought in an inlay specialist Mm -hmm. to do that. Do you think that's possible? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, ads for turners, chair makers, gilders. These are early ads? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, our armoires... Of course, the style, as you said, is very French. The cabriole legs, the whole shape, everything. Um, And a lot of our armoires are similar to one that belonged to Stephen Gerard um, in Philadelphia. He was a a wealthy merchant. And um, he actually imported furniture from France. But he had these two Saint-Domingue immigrés make an armoire for him, maybe more than one. Um, the, the shape of it is very similar to ours. Now, in uh, New Orleans, you know, after the Haitian Revolution occurred, all of these Saint-Domingue immigrants were coming to New Orleans, thousands of them, and so they influenced the food, the music, the culture, everything. Um, and a lot of them uh, went into the cabin-making trade. And so it is no accident that there's a similarity between our armoires and the one that belonged to Stephen Gerard that's in the collection of Gerard College in Philadelphia. So it's French through Saint-Domingue. French through Saint-Domingue, exactly. And travel brought by the craftsmen rather than necessarily, at least in the Philadelphia example, from the client ordering. The craftsmen brought the knowledge of the skill and they made it and the client had it, but it was really brought through the craftsman rather than through the demand. Right, and of course, you know, uh, Louisiana culture, I mean, you have such a strong Gallic heritage. Yes. You know, French is spoken, it's a principal tongue, you know, through the, at least the mid-19th century, into the, probably into the late 19th century. Yes. Um, You know, many of um, our cabinet makers' advertisements are in French and English. Um, So, you know, that would have fit right in, you know, Mm -hmm. these things... Francois Signoret, um, who was a furniture merchant and a wine merchant from Bordeaux, you know, he came to New Orleans, um, sort of, I guess, in the wake of the French Revolution. He arrives in New Orleans and he just plugs right into a culture, you know, in which there are lots of French-speaking people and um, a, a lot of a large community of people who came from Bordeaux. Um, so, did the was, Revolution drive a lot of uh, French aristocrats to New Orleans? Um, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Okay. No. Um, 
Did it drive a lot of craftspeople? In other words, uh, um, if, if the demand for high-end merchandise um, declined with the revolution, um, certainly they, a lot of them went to England, and the English uh, potteries and porcelain factories certainly benefited from this outflow. Um, is there any documentation that, it, that many of them came to New Orleans? That's a hard question to answer. 90%, of course, of the names of our cabinet makers, if you look through the, the listing of names in the back of the, the furniture book, 90% of them are French names. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that was due to people leaving because of the revolution. What the revolution did provide was a lot of aristocrats selling all of their belongings. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson and others go over and come back, you know, with crates laden, <laughs> crates laden with, you know. Yes. Not to mention the, the English aristocracy. Yes. Doing the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, are there are people that collect um, Creole furniture throughout the country, or is it just a regional, mostly a regional collecting habit? It's really a regional a collecting habit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my experience is that the folks in Virginia want Virginia stuff. The mm-hmm. folks in Kentucky want Kentucky stuff. Mm-hmm. The same thing for Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there aren't too many people collecting Louisiana furniture in New Hampshire. <laughs> do you hear of people finding pieces elsewhere and bringing them back to New Orleans? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. There mm-hmm. are pieces that turn up. Um, there are some pieces, important pieces in New York right now mm-hmm. um, that may maybe will surface on the market in the next three or four years. Um, definitely people move. With mm-hmm. their belongings. People get yeah. married, they move, they inherit things, and you know, furniture gets spread hither and yon. Yeah. Um, and so um, you know, a book like ours is very helpful because... You know, it, it shows people what they've got. You know, oh, yes. I didn't know that this armoire was related to this whole group of armoires. And um, so hopefully it'll it'll raise awareness and more things will surface. Because, you know, we're trying to put together the pieces to a, a big puzzle. You know, um, in the furniture book, the armoire section is the largest grouping we have because those are, they survive because they're big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not something that you dispense with easily. Mm-hmm. And also they were heirlooms. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're personalized often with the owner's initials in the freeze. Um, so it's something that is handed down generation to generation. You mentioned that there were German cabinet makers in New Orleans as well. And we see their influence even before the revolution in Charleston with their use of marquetry, um, on especially, most notably, the famous bookcase that Tom Savage has written about. Right, right. Do you see that? I, I am not aware of that type of marquetry being done on New Orleans pieces. You know, I've heard him lecture about that piece, and it's really fascinating, the connection he makes, the direct kind of direct connection. Mm-hmm. Um, a colleague of mine shared um, a regional catalog from France, uh, from Rennes, and uh, there are armoires in that catalog with inlay patterns on them, that definitely remind me of inlay patterns on Louisiana armoires, but then they also remind me of inlay patterns on things in Kentucky and Ah. other, you know, in Tennessee. So I I don't think that um, the connection that Tom Savage makes can be as so easily made on a piece of Louisiana furniture. It would be great if if it could be, but it's just not something so specific. So we don't, so you have lists of 
German cabinet makers, but you have not been able to necessarily attribute specific pieces of furniture to them. No. Okay. Attributing a piece of furniture to a specific cabinet maker is practically um, it's practically impossible. Although now, now that we've gathered up a certain amount of information, mm -hmm. um, now it would be a good time to start trying to, to pull that kind of thing together. You know, like if you have pieces and you, you start to see groups, mm -hmm. then maybe you can right. sort of dive back into uh, the family papers. Yes. So, you know, now we have enough pieces to put together to figure something out. Colonial Williamsburg acquired a very important Louisiana armoire in 2009. 60 years after um, Joseph Downs made his uh, now well-remembered remark that little of artistic merit was ever made south of Baltimore. Um, you know, and so mm -hmm. now Columbia Bloomsburg has acquired this fantastic object from the Deep South. To disprove this assertion. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they're necessarily trying to disprove it, but certainly it was a, a very savvy acquisition. Yes. Um, and recently, um, you know, the, the freeze of that armoire has a row of seven, of seven swags across the, the front of it. Now, something like that, um, the, the book includes, you know, a notation, a catalog entry, but there's so much more to it than that. You know, there yes. are other pieces out there that it is um, stylistically related to. Mm -hmm. um, but so first you have to gather a certain amount of material before you can then use that as a foundation to go off and find you know, the other pieces that that's connected to, which fortunately I've been able to do in the past year. Um, and those results will come out soon. Um, but yeah. Can you tell us the difference between Acadian and Creole? Actually, the name Acadie comes from the name Arcadia, the mythic Greek paradise. And most scholars infer that the word Arcadia uh, may have been synthesized with a similar Indian word, resulting in the final form. And then it was applied to Canadian Nova Scotia by French settlers in the 17th century. So the Acadians were those who migrated to Louisiana from Nova Scotia beginning in about 1755 when they were deported by the British. Um, and then Acadia was incorporated into their empire. And the word Cajun, then, is simply a vernacular corruption of Acadian. Really? Yeah, so it's the same, the same wow. people. So Cajun is Acadian. I never knew that. Yeah. And so Creole, the Acadians are Creole in the sense that um, they are um, born, they're, they're born in the quote-unquote new world of old world parents. I see. First generation, right? So the so the um, Creoles are the second generation, right? So Creole Creole is a, a kind of a multivalent term. Um, now we use it um, often. It's used now as a kind of a racial indicator um, to identify those of African and Indian African and Indian descent. Mm. Um, but its meaning in the 19th century is primarily to define those who are born of European parents in America Very or in the New World. And so everything that is Creole is everything that is following the European model, right? Oh, the yes. Creole houses, the Creole furniture. Mm -hmm. um, Josephine Bonaparte. Josephine Bonaparte. Very good. And, of course, in Louisiana there's a tremendous blending, you know, the Spanish, the French the Anglo-American, mm -hmm. the African, the Caribbean, all this is coming together. And so Creole 
Creole, um, my co-author, Dr. Holden, you know, came up with this idea that Creole style is this new style that emerges. I mean, when you, when you look at the book and you flip through it and you see all these images of all this furniture, you know, you really get a sense of style. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a style that's emerging there, mm-hmm. um, this sort of melding. And so Creole style is the term we use to define that. I see. Yeah, it's something uh, different from anything else. Yes. Um, it's, I think the blending of, of the amalgam of styles is something uh, really unique to Louisiana, unlike um, anywhere else um, in the country at that time. Now, and its there, complexity. Were there some outlying areas of, uh, that produced very similar furniture? You mean like Mississippi or yeah. Alabama? Um, not that I'm aware of. Of course, you know, it's always possible to find out 20 years from now when somebody finds a receipt that one of our amours is made in Mississippi. Right. <laughs> that day yeah. may come. Um, uh, because of the port activity. And yeah. That, you know, maybe. It's mostly there. I mean, we, we believe mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the majority of our inlaid amours are made in New Orleans because mm-hmm. they had the the resources, the city, you know, the, the wood was coming in, all the people were there. And Mr. Dewhurst was there. Right, Mr. Dewhurst was there. Um, so there was a community to support that sort of an enterprise. So it would make sense. And also, they're found in the area, right? Yes. You, things are of where they're coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you always have to hedge a little bit and say, well, you know, but we don't know. We don't have a receipt. So mm-hmm. it's possible that when you say outlying area, that it could have been made 100 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just as Nathan Lombard's furniture for years was thought to have been from Connecticut because mm-hmm. of extensive, his extensive use of cherry and the, um, his unique um, and sort of folky uh, inlay, mm-hmm. it has for, for hundreds of years was attributed to Connecticut mm-hmm. and only recently did, were they able to pin it down to Nathan Lombard of Sutton, Massachusetts. And similarly... All Portsmouth furniture for years was attributed to Salem. Mm-hmm. 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 And similarly, the Sacco main bureaus for until the 1990s were attributed to Portsmouth. That's right, with the drop panels. Yes, the yeah. drop panels and mm-hmm. the combinations of ovals and rectangles. So mm-hmm. um, certainly, and, and now there's talk that much of uh, the furniture attributed to Baltimore um, may actually have been made in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Very, I mean, some of them are so close. They look very close. Yeah, all you could do is make educated guesses. You know, um, I recently put together a group of nine, nine or ten almoirs that, you know, um, are found in and around New Orleans. And they do not have cypress in them as a secondary wood, which is always an indicator of local manufacture, more Mm -hmm. often than not. Not that cypress isn't used outside of Louisiana, because it is. But particularly in Louisiana, when you have a large group of objects and they have cypress as a secondary wood, Chances are they're coming from, from New Orleans. But this group of Amours does not have cypress in the secondary wood. Um, so the question is, were they made locally? Mm-hmm. Were they made in Baltimore or were they made in New Orleans? That can be very, very difficult to discern. Um, the secondary piece that you find the most of, what is that besides Amours that you attribute to New Orleans? Amours, uh, beds, tables, chairs... Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of chairs in the book. Um, uh, I think more chairs. Chairs are second to all Mars. Now, do they have we any don't... type of influence more than another? Are they cabriole leg um, for the most part? Most of the chairs in the book are um, more rudimentary, um, Acadian sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not chairs like 
Heppelwhite or Sheraton. You know, these are um, slapback chairs. Um, sort of, like you said earlier, sort of shaker-like. Sort shaker. of shaker-like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very simple and unadorned. That's right, exactly. Hmm. I always wonder, uh, speaking of structure and cabriole legs, an armoire is a very large heavy piece Mm -hmm. and yet they're always on these very slender curvaceous cabriole legs and you wonder with the way the grain of wood grows do you have a lot of um, legs breaking under the weight of these Mm -hmm. pieces the legs the legs do break um the if you notice um the legs on the armoire that was acquired by colonial williams it has its pied de biche feet um, you know, the pied de biche were carved, little carved deer feet. Um, they were traditional, you know, mm. traditional French sorts of terminals for the, for the legs. Um, and very often you see these broken off because um, it's almost like a ballet dancer on toe shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, the object <laughs> is very delicately balanced on these tiny little mm. delicate feet. And then that's sort of the first thing to go. Um, so often, you know, more often than not, those, uh, little hoof endings have broken off and the thing is just standing on the sort of end of the cabriole. Mm. So they yeah. saw them off once they break and then it just make them even to make it. Even. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would be on the front and the back as well. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think we're just about out of time. Can you uh, say the name of the book that's going to be published? Furnishing Louisiana, Creole and Acadian Furniture, 1735 to 1835. And when will that actually go to press and be out and available? It was published. It was um, published in December 2010, and it's available now. Um, All right. It's in bookstores now. Is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon. It will it, be, since it's on Amazon, um, the listeners, please go to our website, and you will see it there on our website available. All right. Thank you so much. This is... Uh, Susan, I have to say, you are a wonderful co-host. And I watch you you on every show. Thank you. So this is Martin Willis with Susan Doherty and Sadal Gantar, and we're signing off.